Today's guest is Will Shan, who is the co-director of the COVID-19 response team on the executive branch. Hi, Will. Hi, Cricket. Uh, would you mind telling us a little more about yourself, pronouns, major, um, stuff like that? Yeah. Uh, my name is Will. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a junior at Stanford, sort of. There's a long story there, but essentially, yes. And I study psychology. Awesome. And what inspired you to go into psychology? Ah, what a great question. Um, I did a lot of dabbling in Your audio has cut out. And it's still gone. Uh, I'm gonna call in from my phone, maybe. That might okay. be better. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I heard was I did a lot of dabbling. Okay. Let's just see if I can, tell me if the audio, if I'm able to join from my phone, tell me if the audio is better or not. It will be worse, I guarantee you, but as long as it's decent, it should be fine. Which, <laughs> huh. Something doesn't make sense about the sentence. <laughs> okay. It says Will's iPhone has joined the meeting, but there's no audio. Yes, I was just sorting that out. Oh, I can hear myself now. Let me get out of this. Oh, but that's good audio. Is it? Yes. Okay, well, I'm just on, I'm just on data now. <laughs> okay. Um, Wait, do you have unlimited? I'm gonna feel so bad. I I have I'm on a family plan that has decent like I think we can we're super good for an hour. Uh, oh okay. So okay don't okay. worry about that. Okay, cool, cool. Um let so me, let's let's sorry, just let me get my earbuds connected. Okay. AirPods or earbuds? Earbuds. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm still on earbuds too. I couldn't I didn't want to spend the three million dollars. Oh yeah. Um one second, sorry. You know, if I'd been smart, I probably should have just paused the recording. Oops. Sorry, I can tell that you're talking, but my audio is not very good right now. Because um, they're still connected to my... You know, disconnect from my computer first. Today's guest is a junior and member of the, wait, that doesn't work. Hang on. <laughs> uh, today's guest is the executive co-director of COVID-19 response, Will Shan. Hi, Will. Hi, Cricket. Would you mind telling us a little more about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Will. I use he, him pronouns. I am a junior at Stanford and I study psychology. What inspired you to go into psychology? It's a great question. Um, I dabbled in a lot of things before I settled on it. I actually came to Stanford thinking I would study political science and maybe go the elected official route. Um, and I tried product design and I tried a couple of other things, but ultimately I realized that what I was most interested in is human empowerment and broadly just how do I help people improve their lives. And I was interested in doing it in ways that didn't necessarily always uh, mean that I was doing it at scale. I was really interested in the human one-to-one -one connection realm. And so it drew me to the psychology with all of its, you know, all the ways it touches therapy and psychiatry and just broadly better understanding the human condition. Do you know what you're doing in the future then? I do not. Um, I'll hopefully soon be exploring a job where I work as a field guide creating transformative experiences for young people. 
Um, I'm really interested in alternative education and just the psychology of development. But in terms of like, quote, what am I doing in the future post undergrad? I have no idea. I would love to work in education in some way or form. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, well, I wanted to, um, sorry. Okay. Um, so at some point last year, you would have applied for the position of COVID-19 response director. Um, mm -hmm. what, what inspires you to apply for that? And why do you think it's important that we have that on the executive cabinet this year? Yeah. Well, in March, when students were first evicted from Stanford's campus, I got really involved in the immediate mutual aid efforts um, and was part of the group that first helped form Stanford Mutual Aid and was doing that for maybe two or three months. Um, I don't recall exactly when the timeline for ASSU was, but during that work, I got to know a lot of people who were working in ASSU, uh, namely Manira and Viana. And so when the time came around for, you know, executive directors to apply or, you know, for people to apply for those positions, they invited me to apply and said that I might be a good fit. And I thought about it and I thought, I'm going to do this work anyways. I've been doing this work anyways since March, at least. And, you know, I might as well do it with a greater platform and a greater access to administrators so that I can advocate more effectively. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. So which administrators then have you been working with recently? Uh, I primarily work with those in VPSA. That includes Susie Verbrick-Cole, Jen Calvert, Emily de, Emeline de la Pena, and Mona Hicks. I also interact with people on the RD&E side. Um, so like Cheryl Brown or Orlando White. And I have standing meetings every month or so with VPUE. So that's Sarah Church. That is awesome. Um, so when people were evicted from campus in the spring, were you particularly affected by this? Obviously you had to leave, but um, mm -hmm. other than that, you know, I know some people were allowed to stay on campus, but the vast majority of people had to um, had to go. Um, and did you did you have a place to go back to? And I'm only asking, sorry if this is getting personal, but I'm asking because I know like I had to scramble off campus to stay with a friend uh, and that can be really stressful finding somewhere to go. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons I was able to give so much labor and time to the mutual aid efforts at the time is I have the privilege of being a student who's local, or at least within driving distance. I grew up in San Jose and um, my parents lived there and they would welcome me back. And so uh, I fortunately had a fairly good idea where I was going to go, at least in the immediate aftermath of the eviction. Um, and probably is why I was able to offer labor in other ways. Yeah, well, that's that's very kind of you. And I'm glad that you got involved because we need a lot more people like you in this world. Um, hmm. So I felt like the university's decision to evict people for spring quarter was very abrupt. And I think a lot of this is because the administ the country's administration at that time had at that point clearly denied um, or underplayed COVID-19 for a good long while. Um, do you think there would have been a better way for campus to deal with spring quarter at least? All the way back in March. <laughs> yes, all the way back in March. I think there are so many things that could have gone better uh, mostly on the like operational side of things, how it was implemented and how it was delivered and how it was communicated. I think so much of that was really poor and showed um, a lack of understanding of student need. And especially like it, it, it showed that the university had a top-down decision they wanted to deliver and they rushed to implement it without understanding how it might disproportionately impact various populations of students. 
whether or not I agree with their decision, just the final decision of trying to get students off campus, I can't say definitively. Um, even looking back, it's unclear. Well, I don't think I have the expertise when it comes to COVID and epidemiology to be able to critique or not critique that decision. But I certainly think the rollout itself was mishandled in many ways. Although I try to give credit to their intention and their effort. Sure. And so what about for fall quarter? Because I know uh, some universities told students that they should just plan to have an quote unquote at home academic year. But Stanford mm -hmm. has kind of been waffling on each quarter as we're very aware. Yes. Um, I think with Stanford's quarterly approach, I understand why they're doing it. I think they are optimistic. Uh, they're optimistic people and they would like in an ideal world to invite students back. Um, I do think that has led to really disastrous outcomes at times, for example, with the winter quarter decision and the last minute rollback. I personally speaking for myself, um, just you know, for myself, not for any group of students or anybody else, probably would have preferred knowing in advance what each quarter was going to be, even if it meant that the entire year was going to be online for planning purposes. But I understand why some people would rather have it be made on a case-by-case -case decision in the hopes that, yeah, maybe they could return to campus. So one thing that I said to someone once uh, was that I would have appreciated if Stanford had just told us to find stable housing for the year. And then if later they had said, okay, well, we can have a few students back, so apply if you are interested. Um, but mm -hmm. do you think that's a good way to have done things? Because I, I had that conversation with one person and they said that that might be equally disruptive. Yeah, I don't think, I personally don't think that's a good blanket policy. For example, I have friends and peers at other institutions that uh, were told something of a similar effect, like, hey, find stable housing, we'll figure it out, and are now locked in a year-long lease after their school has decided to go back to online. And so I think if Stanford wanted to communicate something like that, it would require a lot of qualification, a lot of nuance, and a lot of guidance in individual scenarios. Um, but I do think that a place that is very much lacking and like left wanting by students is just how unstable the university's decisions have uh, proven to be for students' lives and where they live and whether they can have secure housing and whether they can, yeah, take care of themselves in all the ways that they need to and deserve to. Um, yeah. So which do you think was handled better than last spring or the fall? And I'm not going to include the winter because that's obviously not going to be the answer. <laughs> Well, you give me two options, <laughs> one of which was right at the beginning of the pandemic when nobody knew what was going on, and which, in my opinion, was far worse than how the fall was handled. Although I think every quarter has left room for improvement, I think the university hopefully has understood that, and hopefully students and I have been able to help communicate that. But if, you, if you're giving me a binary of spring or fall, I think the fall was better than the spring. Okay. <laughs> I would tend to agree with you, although you know, to the university's credit, we kind of were just told about the pandemic um, in a way that people were not, you know, encouraged to take it very seriously and then suddenly it became mm -hmm. a problem. I mean, I remember, um, let's see, I think it was told, I think it was told to the country uh, sometime in February. And looking back at my Facebook, I saw that I had um, a trip in February with Erica. Uh, we went to a leadership seminar or something um, in LA. And then a couple weeks later, I went to DC. And looking back on that now, I just, I'm thinking like that could have been huge in terms of risk. Um, mm. But, but we weren't taking the whole, hmm, 
I would say a lot of people were not taking it seriously at the time um, because it didn't seem like the federal government was taking it seriously. Do you think that there's that that could have played into how the university uh, how the university did and is handling um, these COVID nineteen decisions? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, if there had been more clear guidance coming from the federal government and just information sharing and a willingness to reckon with the reality of the virus early on, I think perhaps the university would have more time to handle the need to remove students from campus and do it in a more graceful and less damaging way. Um, I'm hopeful for how, you know, the new federal government, the new administration is going to communicate and uh, message officially about COVID-19. And I'm sure that'll have an impact on how the university responds in this environment as well. Um, but yeah, if the federal government was more competent back in February, I think the entire March fiasco, uh, springtime rollout, sorry, spring quarter rollout of the eviction would have been hopefully a little bit more graceful. Yeah, and hopefully now we'll get the vaccine going here. And, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people who are not going to be willing to take the vaccine, but at least it's an option at that point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So last spring, people were kicked off campus and uh, to an extent this quarter, some people, I mean, people felt like they were kicked off campus. And in the fall, that wasn't so much the case um, because the decision the, because the decision was <laughs> made a lot more clear a lot earlier. Um, but what are the other impacts on students and I, I don't want to keep comparing last spring to everything else, but mm -hmm. I think it's important to take that into account because maybe if an administrator listens to this, that will impact how they handle things in the future. Mm -hmm. Which so, uh, impact of what? Just the impact of the decisions on students. Um, every decision around whether or not to invite students back for yes. COVID reasons. Yes. <sighs> yeah. I mean, the administrators are dealt a very tough hand in that there's a, a bunch of competing interests and needs from students. But I think a through line that can be uh, honestly stated is that the needs of those students who uh, are first generation and or low income and those with special circumstances have not been centered nearly as much as they need to be in the university's decision making. Um, I mean, I think I remember back in the summer even before the first quarter of the school year, uh, there was a lot of right, you know, righteous anger around how the university handled whether or not and how to offer housing and on-campus jobs to those in, who needed a place to stay. I mean, that at the time there were there were the George Floyd protests, there was racial violence and injustice, you know, all across the country. Um, there was the pandemic that was still developing. Um, and there were countless other things that made it, frankly, unsafe, probably, for many people to go back to wherever they could go back to or stay off campus. Uh, but the university chose, in that case, to you know offer summer jobs ostensibly, but uh, continue to charge for a room and board. When in the past years they would offer jobs that would have room and board covered for free, and that basically meant that a lot of students had one option for housing. That housing was Stanford, and they were working you know 30, 40 hours a week just to pay down their rent for the summer. And I think that if the if Stanford was more in touch with some of the needs of the students who need camp need campus housing or need campus housing during that time, would have been a decision 
that probably would have changed. It would have been different. Um, I, I certainly hope so, at least. I certainly hope that it was an act of, you know, out of lack of information as opposed to a lack of, you know, intent to just profit or intent to get money from students. Um, but I think, I mean, that this similar through line of students needs not being centered in the fall and winter have been seen time and time again. I mean, even most recently with the winter quarter decision, I think the university didn't understand how it would impact those who, for example, um, let's say are international students who had actually arrived in the country and were about to, you know, show up on campus when they heard the news that they would no longer be invited back and had spent a thousand dollars trying to travel here and were now stuck in a, you know, a place where they either had to find temporary housing and refigure it out and fly back and deal with their country's quarantine if they could afford it even, or they would be locked into campus housing as their only safe option. And I think just a lot of these questions, a lot of these, what the university might view as edge cases, but I view as like just students' needs. Um, I think they're they're not properly centered and not properly paid attention to in a lot of the university's decision-making. And that's something that I think ASSU has probably been trying to fix for years. And certainly this year we've been trying to fix, but um, I imagine will continue to be an ongoing conversation. Yes, I think one thing that the pandemic has caused is for um, the, I well, I would hope that the, that COVID-19 has caused the administration to really think about the income disparity because one thing that Stanford does do well um, to an extent is um, the need blind admissions policy. Um, I mean, you know, clearly if people with higher incomes were considered first, then I, I certainly would, <laughs> would not be at, uh, on campus right now. Well, at Stanford right now, I guess is the better way of putting it. Um, mm. So I appreciate that, but I think I think when it comes to how COVID-19 has been handled, this, the income disparity is really, really clear. And particularly if there are low income students um, who are international, then that just makes life a lot harder, particularly because of, um, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not too familiar with how visas work. But I would say that I imagine um, that making arrangements and having a visa and not being able to be on campus would be incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, 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 hundred percent. And I think this, you know, this whole question of income disparity is, I think, just something that shows up at Stanford in various ways and has showed up for years now. Um, and you know, one of the things I I do outside of ASSU is I, I organize as a student organizer with a coalition of students called, or students, not just students, but student staff and alumni called the Basic Needs Coalition. And I mean, it's it's a, a really brutal truth that. The basic needs, specifically housing and food and healthcare, of a lot of Stanford students, undergrads and grads, are not met. And I'm not, it's not clear to me the university is fully aware of the extent and depth of that issue. And that's something that we're trying to fix, but it's been really frustrating. Yeah, I think with the winter quarter decision, um, one thing that I said to an administrator is that especially with this quarter, people, a lot of people are angry and they have a right mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. But really for me, like the anger, <laughs> the anger isn't the important thing for me. For me, the disappointment is the thing that's never going to fade. Because like mm. anger, I'll probably be not angry in a couple weeks. But the disappointment, like that's something that unfortunately I might carry with me when, you know, if I have children and, I, and one of them is considering going to Stanford. <laughs> so... Mm. Maybe that's a little over-dramatizing, but it's something that I think, you know, should be considered. 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think many people share that sentiment. And I think, you know, I had a meeting with some administrators just to, uh, last week, right after the rollout of the winter quarter decision. And the main message of that meeting for me and a couple of other folks in ASSU is that like, we need to really honestly reckon with this decision has probably brought distrust of the university from students to an all-time high. Like there was, there were people in this meeting who attended Stanford for both undergrad and grad. And we're saying, and I have been involved in student activism for years now. And we were all honestly grappling with, yeah, you know, everybody is distrustful of the university right now. And that's something that we need to fix. And we want to help the university fix it. But I think university needs to start by recognizing that that's the reality of how some of their decisions and rollout of decisions have impacted students. Yes, I absolutely agree. Um, and I think that that trust needs to start with transparency, particularly with how decisions are handled. I think the university can be very, um, Kevin says siloed frequently, but I think that's kind of how it is in that I was actually emailing an administrator um, after the COVID-19 decision because we had a little bit of a disagreement about the op-ed that Viana, Chris, and Gianna and I put out. Um, so I was trying to clear that up. And it sounds like from what they were saying that the vast majority of the administration is not responsible for a decision um, as big as the stay at home. I don't want to say the stay at home order. That doesn't sound right. But the, the winter quarter decision. Um, so I think just learning how those decisions are made so that we can figure out who to talk to when we have issues or if we have thoughts um, is very important. Yeah. And I can, I can share that that's an ongoing conversation with administrators right now. Yeah. So I would like to think that students on campus are being um, aware of the impacts of COVID-19 and are being cautious. Um, mm -hmm. Last quarter, there was a 19% non-compliance rate with testing policies. And a lot of that was due to the fact that there weren't enough testing slots available. But mm -hmm. some of it, I'm, I, I'm fairly certain that maybe some of it was due to just a lack of wanting to comply. And that's very sad. Um, in an article in the Daily that was published in October, you said that you think the Stanford community is generally very cautious when it comes to COVID-19. But there are also a lot of students who have reported um, on-campus gatherings, both outside and inside, that have not been prohibited. And just a general lack of compliance with the pod policy and other things like that. So I guess I'm kind of just wondering um, where that came from, because I, well, I, I guess I'm just kind of wondering where that thought and that quote came from, because it seems like there just really hasn't been much cautiousness um, in the first couple weeks that students were allowed back on campus there were already 54 cases last week i believe there were 85 combining the faculty and staff and the students um, i think maybe only i think about somewhere between like 30 and 45 of those were students but i just want to get your thoughts on that yeah i'm curious do you live on campus right now i do not i am in arizona otherwise known as nosebleedville okay um, I can't tell if that was a joke or that's an actual town. No, <laughs> no, it's definitely there. a joke. No, it's not. Okay. Here. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
I will first offer the qualification that, you know, I am not on campus. And so this is my best impression of how campus actually is informed by conversations with those who are and staff who are. Um, I think it's important to first offer some context around the number of 54 cases last week and, you know, 80 some cases as of this week. Um, this was very alarming for me to read, of course, and for my team in COVID. And uh, my understanding based off of conversations with the university is that the vast majority of those are not a result from community spread, so i.e. irresponsible behavior, but rather cases in which, for example, a student didn't have access to testing or did not request an at-home test kit before arriving on campus and then tested positive after traveling to the airport. So not necessarily a result of, you know, uh, irresponsible or uh, not conscious behavior, but it is my understanding that the vast majority of those cases were just cases that were caught during quarantine, as hopefully quarantine was assigned to be, but certainly an alarming number nonetheless. Um, I personally think, and this is of course something that people should push back on, um, people who are on the ground and living on campus, it is my belief from you know having friends on campus, talking with staff on campus, that there are certainly cases of like flagrant and or just conspicuous violations of current COVID campus policy you know, on-campus gatherings, mixing of pods, um, certainly people probably going off campus and disobeying the stay-at-home order in the Bay Area right now and interacting with folks, et cetera. I have no doubt that that exists. I do think that it's slightly overrepresented in things like social media, like Stanford Misconnections and other places. Oh dear. Um, and it is still my belief that a lot of the reasons why students are out of compliance are actually not out of malicious intent or out of like uh, direct, not wanting to obey, but rather I think it's really confusing right now to be a student on campus where the policies are constantly changing, where the Bay Area policies are constantly changing, where right now there's considerations perhaps that maybe testing is going to be consolidated to a site that's going to be far away from a lot of undergrads. Um, you know, it's just not very clear what students should and should not be abiding to. And there's also not a clear um, uh, mechanism right now, at least there wasn't until maybe this week. Uh, necessarily a clear mechanism to help encourage adherence to the various COVID guidelines. So yes, of course, there's the campus compact, which was disastrously rolled out and is punitive and is very much the stick approach when it comes to carrot and stick. And this week, they rolled out another mechanism that's more of a punishment-based approach or a stick approach, which is if you're out of compliance with your COVID testing or your just COVID check-ins uh, three times, at that point, you lose access to all on-campus housing, or sorry, all campus uh, buildings besides your housing, which is probably a very effective deterrent, but at the same time demonstrates that the philosophy of the university is taking is probably one much more of a negative incentive as opposed to positive incentive. Although there have been some talks of increasing more positive incentives, but yeah, to respond directly to your statement, um, it is personally my belief, but given my work and given what I've, the people I've spoken to, and I stand to be correct on this, the vast majority of students uh, are in compliance, are diligent about being COVID cautious, and that those who are not, uh, I think a small proportion of them are probably deliberately not or just flagrantly avoiding the various policies, but a still a large amount of responsibility falls on the fact that the communication and the uh, how easy the university makes it easy uh, to how you, easy the university makes it to understand their policies. Um, that's, I think, where a lot of the responsibility should also fall. Um, I, I personally think that that needs to be talked about more. I agree. Um, so some, at least the housing in EVGRA means that people have mini fridges and I, at least somewhat personal kitchens. 
this kind of encourages people to go off campus to get groceries and stuff like that, which makes sense. But at the same time, having uh, being encouraged to go off campus also does increase the risk of exposure. Um, so do you think there's a better way to handle that? Um, well, I think it's important to recognize, you know, the various needs that are going into play here. I think it's really important that students have affordable food or affordable access to food. And I think for a lot of students, that means not being on a meal plan and rather being cooking for themselves. And so I don't think that should be closed off as an option for them. As for the question of how for students to actually get their groceries in the safest way and then, you know, the most, uh, prudent way. I think that's something that I don't have the perfect answer to. Um, I would hope that those who are going grocery shopping are doing it in a way that is masked, that possibly they have a face shield and gloves, that use hand sanitizer afterwards, etc. But I think everyone has the freedom to make their own choices. And I do think ultimately that the fact that people have access to kitchens in some residences, not all, um, and go grocery shopping is actually important for student health and for student well-being. Right. That makes sense. Um, so you were talking a little bit ago about positive incentives for students mm -hmm. rather than the punitive approach that seems to be um, put into effect now. Um, what do you think positive incentives would involve? Yeah, let me get some water really quick. Sorry, my throat's dry. Um, yeah. Can you repeat your question? Uh, yes. So. When it comes to positive incentives for students to obey the campus um, compact and COVID-related policies, um, what kinds of things do you think would be involved in positive incentives? Yeah. Um, one of the bodies I work with is the Graduate Student Advisory Committee on COVID-19 Affairs, which is a group of graduate students that advise you know, the university on how COVID-19 policies affect graduate students specifically. And an idea that's been floated that has been received by university and I think is possibly being under consideration right now is simply uh, incentivizing testing compliance or testing adherence by offering a raffle. And it sounds really simple and it sounds like kind of a no brainer, but simply by offering some, you know, rewards that perhaps a college student would want like a Nintendo Switch or AirPods or whatever it might be for being fully in compliance with getting their weekly testing or biweekly testing for the full quarter. Um, is one example of what positive incentives might look like. Um, it's unclear to me as someone who, you know, I work in a lab called the Behavior Design Lab. I study behavior change a little bit. Um, it's unclear to me how effective that would be, but I certainly think that that's the right line of thinking is that we should not always be leading with the stick as Stanford seems to have a tendency to do, but rather think more about the carrot and what, how students could increase their motivation or how we can increase students' motivations to adhere to campus policy and or just make it way easier. And I think that's the place that is often ignored. We jump to the motivation, we jump to why are students, you know, deliberately out of compliance, et cetera. And I don't think students have, you know, malicious motivations most of the time. Um, again, I think ease and accessibility is a really, really important lever that university has not fully invested in. Right, that makes sense. I also do wanna talk a little bit about um, the ASSU's responses to COVID-19 um, in terms of the university's decisions. Wow, I can't talk today. Um, <laughs> so this quarter, we were kind of scrambling because we received the news of the university's decision at the same time as everyone else did. And while I don't think it necessarily would be, uh, while I don't think it would necessarily be fair for us to receive the news earlier, it also makes it very difficult for us to respond in a timely fashion since um, to an extent, 
the ASSU is responsible for um, reassuring students and for having also a timely response. And when we hear about not being allowed onto campus uh, less than 40 hours before the start of the quarter, we have to scramble in some ways um, more than other people in that, well, in some ways more than other people who are not returning to campus um, in that we have to spend our last weekend coming up with responses, um, you know, officially um, to the administrators directly and also in the form of op-eds and things like that and an all-campus email, et cetera. Um, so, I, so that means that I personally advocate for earlier notification for all students, um, but how do you think the ASSU has been in terms of um, response times given that the university has given us fairly short notice on everything? Well, I certainly wish the ASSU response time was quicker, but I recognize that the reason our response is not quicker is because the university's response is not quicker. Um, I mean, in this particular case with the winter quarter, it's clear to me now that uh, only the highest level of administrators, senior administrators knew that the decision was coming any time in advance. And in fact, the decision was made quite, uh, you know, very close to winter quarter. And so it came as a surprise to many of the administrators that I work with and the administrators that were actually delivering the news. And so of course, ASSU received the news late as well. Or not late, I'm sorry, you know. Oh, actually it was late in the grand universal <laughs> scheme of things. It was very late for everybody. Um, but relatively speaking, we received this and the other students. I think that's a question that the ASSU is trying to explore in this upcoming quarter, especially as we think about whether or not we're actually going to reopen for spring and what is, you know, what is graduation going to look like? What is commencement going to look like? These big questions about in-person gatherings in light of COVID, especially as we monitor the, the new COVID variants that are beginning to appear that may be more infectious or be more transmissible. Right. Um, and so one of the questions we are beginning to explore is whether or not uh, we can help the university administrators do things like impact analyses, like play out hypothetical scenarios. Like we do open for spring, we don't open for spring. How does this deliver? Let's talk about when it's delivered and to whom and who's getting support, who's not getting support. And what are the frequently asked questions that need to be answered immediately to allay student concerns? And um, that's one of the roles that we're exploring, to, uh, pursuing this quarter and the administration has been very receptive to. And so even if we're not given the formal, you know, heads up like, hey, PS, you're all getting to know a week in advance that we are our opening. We do hope that the university just generally having more contingency planning that involves student voice and is able to incorporate student impact. Uh, so our input will be really impactful. Right. And like, <laughs> just for the record, I do imagine that the administration knew at least a couple days before we were told, which I don't want to throw them under the bus, but there, I just, I feel like there's no way that they could have, that they made the decision like, just the day before or something. Um, and one thing that a lot of people were saying in their responses um, to our form that we sent out um, about what concerns students had in relation to the winter quarter decision um, is that a lot of people were, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's embarrassing. <laughs> I should make a blooper reel. Um, <laughs> anyway, a lot of people were just very concerned about the lack of transparency, again, with the decision-making process, but also they, 
uh, they felt like we should have been told almost immediately after the decision was made. There are various opinions on that in that some people think that that would have caused mass panic that wouldn't have been able to have been addressed by anyone. But at the same time, a lot of people are feeling like it would have been um, better overall because even if there was panic, at least travel plans would have been more cancelable. Um, would you agree with that? Uh, it's hard to say without knowing exactly the timeline that university actually operated in. I think if they had to announce on a day where none of their staff who were going to actually answer student questions were available, i.e. they made the decision on a weekend, um, I don't know if necessarily means that they should announce, you know, Sunday morning without waiting a day when administrators, staff might be more responsive and able to help students navigate questions. Um, I just generally think an underlying principle should be generally that they should make decisions earlier and stick to them and play on the side of caution and account for the uncertainty involved in being in a pandemic. Um, and that just having that as an underlying principle first would have avoided any situation where you and I now have to be talking about, you know, what could have gone better with this really urgent, really last minute announcement. Um, yeah. So looking forward then to spring, but also just in general, does the ASSU have, uh, it's kind of weird for me to be asking you this since I'm a colleague, but does, sure. <laughs> does the ASSU have any um, plans for spring, but also just for building that trust? Because I think, um, well, I know that some people feel that since we are advocates, we don't really necessarily need to have a trusting relationship with the university as long as we're doing our part in advocating for students. But I would say that the trust needs to be there because whether we like it or not, we are working with the university. We can't constantly work against them or else that kind of just defeats the purpose of advocacy. Um, so what is the ASSU doing to better COVID response on the on our part and on the university's part, but also just to rebuild that trust? Yeah, well, I think there's trust, just to talk about trust a little bit, there's probably some trust that could be strengthened between ASSU and the university. I think the big question is how does trust get rebuilt between students and the university, students who don't go to the meetings that we go to, don't meet the ministers as, as we do, and who rightfully don't trust the administrators because of how various decisions have impacted them. Um, I think as it relates to that question of trust, I, one, I agree with you, Cricket. I think ultimately, in my opinion, all advocacy is relational and, and you know, relationships matter and having trust matter. And it doesn't mean that we have to be buddy-buddy with the university administration, but it does mean that we need to be able to speak and be open to regular meetings and to be able to share information that might impact people. And without trust, you can't really do that in good conscience. Um, as for, how we will rebuild that trust. I think number one, uh, it is ASSU's goal and hope that the university is going to lay out one, an earlier and a more concrete timeline for how they're gonna go about the spring decision to share as much as they're able, the criteria they're using to make this decision. So that even if their final decision comes, you know, one or two or three weeks before spring quarter, if students know that these are the three, you know, or four criteria, for example, ICU capacity or availability of COVID-19, isolation wards on campus, or student experience, whatever it might be, things that we could predict by looking at the news in advance, 
it won't be quite as shock if they were to choose to not bring students back on campus. And it shares a little bit more insight into their thinking. Um, and finally, I think the thing that is my personal goal for this quarter uh, is to create more bi-directional feedback mechanisms between the university and students, i.e. like more places that the university goes to with adequate student representation, student staff, with students with special circumstances, apply students, you know, students, you know, who are international, et cetera, these students who they go to while they're making their decisions or before they roll up their decisions, who will be honest with them and who can share how this will impact them and their friends. So those are all kind of concrete steps that I think both the ASSU and the university is taking to address this question of trust generally. But how this plays out, how spring goes, I think we'll have to see. I agree. And I want to give a shout out to the Senate because they have been making a lot of efforts to have these ASSU boot camps with um, Persis and Susie and people from the Faculty Senate and other parts of the university. Um, and I think that really will help internally with us being able to understand how decisions are made and also to figure out how we can be more effective advocates. Um, one, one important question that I would have that's probably more polarizing within the ASSU um, is that if we were to receive, if, if the university were to do kind of something like they did this quarter where maybe they're saying, oh, you know, sometime in March they say, oh, juniors and seniors are definitely going to be back on campus for spring. Um, and then they tell us, you know, maybe a week later that that's actually not going to happen. And then they don't tell students for like, they're not planning to tell students for a couple weeks after that. Um, is it, would you say it's our responsibility to inform the students that this is the knowledge that we have, even if there were a confidentiality agreement there? Because on one hand, we're supposed to be advocates on behalf of the student body. But on the other hand, if the same thing happens that happened this quarter, then that would be a problem. Yeah, that's very tricky. My hope and my belief is that, you know, if that were the case, the ASSU would actually be an effective position to tell the university upfront that you need to announce your decision much sooner. And that they trust us enough and that we trust them enough to understand why that's important, that uh, we would have to avoid this whole question of whether or not the ASSU would have to break confidentiality and leak it. Um, that's my personal stance. If that were ever the scenario to play out that that you the the ASSU could effectively advocate the university um, to announce it in a more timely manner. Right, and I hope that they would do that. So we'll see how things well. go. It sounds like they're planning to announce something uh, in the week of March first. So that's somewhat comforting. I just hope that people will take that seriously because, especially after a decision like this, I imagine that anything that happens in regard to spring quarter may not be trusted um, as much. So yeah. And it, it's important to note from the March 1st decision, they couched that uh, the language they use is non committing. So they uh. specifically said, we're going to be doing our best to give our latest update or latest decision that week, but things may change. And so we're working on with the university to make sure that we at least know when we'll get the final final decision. I'm glad that they're at least committing to sharing some update in March 1st. Um, I hope, like you, that it's not misinterpreted or that expectations aren't, you know, inaccurately adjusted based off that decision. Right, so that's all the questions I have today, but any last words? <laughs> no, this has been a lot of fun. Um, 
yeah, I've learned a lot from being in the ASSU. And if someone's listening to this that is interested in COVID-19 response and wants to get in touch or just interested in thinking about getting involved in the ASSU, I would highly encourage it. And I would encourage them to reach out.